Chapter 2 The Fruit Game The Walk Away from the Oranges and Towards the Game of Football My dad and his brothers, Bob, Bill, Eric, Norman and Gerald, all followed their dad Robert into the fruit trade, eventually breaking away to run their own businesses in local shops around 50s and 60s Hull. They shared the same dark wavy hair with gypsy curls at the neck, blue eyes and a fierce independence with a competitive nature, too much so in my opinion. If they had had the confidence to properly and productively collaborate, they could have cleaned up in Hull with their collective buy-in and shared resources. They say large families are close. Trust me, in the case of the souls of Fitzroy Street, Beverley Road, this was not the case. Dad had started at entry level with the handcarts, but by the time I was with Tully in the Scully, he was pretty successful with shops on Beverley Road, Waterloo Street, Charles Street, Patrick's Pool in York, and a hugely successful stall in York Market. This was quite a sizable local business in those days and needed more organisation and infrastructure than being a sole trader would require. He had a motley bunch of staff gathered from friends, relations, and customers. His brother Gerald was a proper operator who looked after York until the age to run his own shop became irresistible and he borrowed the money from Grandma Edith to set up on his own. Neither told Dad until the day Gerald left, which hurt him a lot. Youngest brother Henry was disabled by childhood polio and this left him with anger problems, which led him towards the interesting practice of abusing customers. Dad tried to be understanding and patient, but when Henry threw a cauliflower at one customer and actually hit his target, he had to go. Customer abuse or customer care, I think Dad made a wise decision to plump for the latter. My mum, her mother Nancy and daughter Joan all worked on and off at the Beverly Road shop, as did David Ness who had learning difficulties. Dave used to play football with me when I was very young in the rear storeroom using an old potato for a ball and two wooden banana boxes for goals. I'm sure customers in the front shop would have been able to hear our shuffling and scuffling with attendant cries of victory and defeat. Once when I scored yet another goal by kicking the now skinned potato against a banana box Dave was defending, the top dropped open and a large hairy spider the size of a fist emerged. I found a turn of pace that has never been replicated before or since, and Dave actually beat me to the back door. The truth is that Dave wasn't much use in the shop, apart from lifting some boxes around and amusing me. But Dad felt sorry for him and his family, so kept him in a job, in so proving that CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility, and businesses giving something back to the community are not 21st century inventions. On the few occasions I visited the market in York, I found it quite inspiring in comparison to the shops in Hull. It was busy, bustling and fun, and my dad loved it, and looked upon that stall as his life's work. The only aspect he didn't like was dealing with the many American tourists. They touched his peaches, and he seriously did not like his peaches being touched. One piece of folklore which I think is just about true involved the young assistant pair of legs that Dad always found necessary to help create the flash. Flash was a term for the display of fruit to lure customers and Flash's cash is what Dad used to exclaim to emphasise its relative importance. The help transported the stock from the wagon to stall and back and generally cleared up. This particular kid of 15 or so was called Mike and he was approached by an American tourist who said he wanted half a lettuce. Mike was a bit thrown and sought advice from Dad, who used to sit on an orange box behind the stall doing a passable impression of a Yorkshire Buddha. Mike went behind the flash to talk to the boss and said, Mr Sewell, this knobhead American wants half a lettuce. What he didn't realise was that his transatlantic customer had followed him and was listening over his shoulder. A startled Mike noticed him, turned to look and after a short pause to gather himself, said, and this gentleman wants the other half. At the end of the day, when wrapping up, Dad approached Mike, complimenting him on his quick thinking, but questioning his origins. That's not a York accent, is it? 
Sounds more hull. Yes, Mr Sewell, I'm from Hesel Road, but my family had to leave. Why was that, Dad inquired. The area was going down fast. It was full of prostitutes and rugby league players. Dad became indignant. My wife's from Hesel Road. No, this is also my mother. All right, said Mike, creating some thinking time. Who did she play for? You see, Mike had what we used to call nouse, a common sense basic streetwise intelligence that people can have exclusive of apparent intellect or academic qualifications. His mental arithmetic could add up any customer's order as well as calculate the odds and winnings on a bet. He just couldn't do it at school and so was tagged as a bottom grade low achiever. Incredibly, he worked for Dad, then Brother Ronnie, right through his career until our last shop in Gypsyville closed and my brother retired four decades later. Well done, Mike, and thanks. Your half a lettuce story would become part of any talk I give and has become not only the title of this book, but also the name of my personal investment company, which from 2020 onwards will invest in local entrepreneurs. York was fab, but most of all I loved the old wholesale fruit market based down Humber Street on the waterfront which is now Hull's creative quarter by its marina. Just like Covent Garden, it was a hive of commercial activity and atmosphere from early morning until early afternoon when business had been completed. Its sense of community was extraordinary, its characters legendary, be they buyers or sellers, and I loved accompanying Dad and seeing him in his elements and having the type of banter I never saw him enjoy anywhere else. He had a timber shed that he called his box by the still water of the Humber dock at the top of the street and he used it as his office base when in the area. This was more for drinking huge mugs of the sweetest tea and smoking a proportion of his 60 players a day rather than doing any paperwork. Believe it or not, he would share it with some of his brothers in a concession to collaboration and I love sitting there listening to their tortured attempts at family communication. This often lapsed into Cockney rhyming slang. Butchers meant look from butcher's hook. Apples meant stairs after apples and pears. A decent whistle meant the approval of someone's suit, whistle and flute. Merely my so smart dad who always dressed immaculately. Watch him, he's a John. Applied to anybody considered shady or unscrupulous by likening them to the famous English countryman John Hunt's. This round didn't bear thinking about too much. I learnt the business lesson of a lifetime down the street one morning when my dad was looking for some citrus stock for the whole shops and York stall at the weekend. I was about 10 years old and walking a pace behind him as he meandered down the crowded street past the various wholesalers with their flash of colourful merchandise. He came to the bubbly wide boy salesman Ron Rigglesworth or Ronnie Rigg as he was known who stood grinning behind his display of oranges. Dad paused to engage the little man in a flat cup with brilliantly white, ill-fitting false teeth. How much you want for this crap? Not crap, Ron, but best South African Jaffa. Sweet, seedless, and a steal at ten bob a box. Ten bob? I can't get that for them even in York. Dad moved away down the street, motioning me to follow A dozen paces later, Ronnie Rigg left his post and followed Dad, accosting him further down the street. Placing an arm round his shoulder, he said, Come on, Ron, we can talk about this. Dad continued his progress, another ten paces. You're being unreasonable again, Ron. Dad eventually returned to the boxes of Jaffa, and after a brief exchange, agreed to pay eight bob a box for thirty. Back in the box with his bucket of sweet tea and me with a lemonade, Dad looked over at me to impart a rare lesson. He wasn't at all a conversationalist, probably due to the necessary absence of it in his chaotic upbringing, so this was a rare honour. The most important move in any negotiation is the move away and meaning it, he said. If we had not done that just now, we would have been stood there yet and the oranges would still be ten bob a box. As if exhausted by his rhetoric, his mouth went back to the mug. Tea was noisily slurped and his gaze reverted back to the little dirty window looking out down Humber Street. On reflection, 
he was paradoxical inasmuch as after he had made his money through streetwise trading, he would give it away. There would be a fiver here and there to people who would approach him with stories of misfortune and hardship. And holidays at Pontins, where we'd have other families with us because Dad had paid for them. I only discovered this later, at the time thinking it was a joint communal break with friends. Gazing through that dirty window and seeing far enough through the Humber Street bustle, he would have spied the legendary cafe at the other end of the fruit market where just about everybody gathered at the close of trading for brunch and a natter. This place not only served the best baking butties in town, but became pivotal later in my early life. This was because, coincidentally, some of the most influential local football people worked down Humber Street after retirement from the full-time game or as their full-time job while they were paid for playing part-time. It was football-filled boot room, with the smell of sizzling bacon and mashing tea. Former Hull City centre-half and captain Paul Feezy was now the big, thinning, blonde-haired manager of Gould Town, and more pertinent for me, scout for First Division Blackpool. Hull City centre-forward, the gentle giant Colin Smith, was taking over at Hull Brunswick, also, there were the diminutive Jimmy Cook, who could have been my school friend and teammate Dave Burrell's elder brother. Mike Page, the Derbyshire cricketer, who played part-time for Bridlington Town, managed by former Hull City fullback Bob Dennison. This august gathering spawned Hull Fruit Trade Sunday League football team so they could play together for pleasure on a Sunday in what was then one of the largest and most competitive leagues in the country. Top Sunday League games in Hull at that time were of an incredibly high standard and well attended which created touchlines full of spectators who would join the players for a Sunday lunch session at the local pubs. At 16 I was casually asked in the Humber Street Cafe if I would like to go down to pre-season training with the Fruit Trade squad. Accepting was one of my better decisions. I was already a long-term member of Hull City's Academy having been spotted at the age of 11 at the Hull School's five-a-side tournament, which the club ran to encourage young talent to reveal itself. Hull City had one of the first youth academies in the country when a gift by Chairman Harold Needler in the early 60s not only brought the legendary trio of Ken Wagstaff, Ian Butler and Ken Houghton, and hence promotion up the leagues, but a new South Stand, state-of-the-art floodlights, and more importantly to us, a huge cavernous brick-built indoor gym behind the new south stand at the club's Boothbury Park ground. Here they would host sessions every Tuesday and Thursday evening for the cream of local young talent that they wanted to develop rather than have to pay the large transfer fees they often parted with. Manager Cliff Britton, in his suit, tie, top coat and trilby, watched first-team coach Gus McLean and his assistant John Simpson in their tracksuits put us through our paces for four hours every week, demonstrating the club took the idea and the process seriously. Throughout, the assessment of young players was continuous and brutal. I was honoured and surprised to survive the inevitable cull of lads deemed not good enough over five years I was there. There were tears when youngsters were told they were to be let go because they weren't up to the required standard. These included many of my school friends from our all-conquering school team and I was always as sad to see them depart as I was relieved to stay. One time myself and another kid were pulled out of a session and we thought, this is it, the bullet. An agonising wait followed during which not a word passed between us. Incredibly, it turned out to be us who were staying and the other 20 or so departing. Joy, relief and then the thought that I actually might be better than I believed and possibly even be on my way to becoming a professional footballer. This proved not to be the case as they never even gave me a game in the Junior Tigers and I struggled to hold down a permanent place in the East Riding Schoolboys team at the time. This apparent contradiction regarding my ability confuses me now, but doesn't seem to bother me then. The most telling incident during my time at Hull City is probably my most vivid memory and doesn't involve me as a player, but as a starstruck fan. I have never had much sense of smell, but if any place was defined through my nostrils, 
It was under the Boothbury Park main stand, with its heady combination of tobacco smoke, liniments and urine from the open gents urinals alongst a brick wall with an open channel at its base. My favourite player by a mile at Hull City was Ken Wagstaff, or Waggy as he was adoringly known. Signed from Mansfield Town as part of Harold Needler and Cliff Britton's rejuvenation of the club, he was the star from the start, eclipsing local boy Chris Chilton, although they needed each other as a striking duo. Chiller was the battering ram workhorse, and Waggy was box office. So good were they that it was said that they would have been in England's 1966 World Cup squad had they been with a top-flight club. Waggy was pure class, and I wanted to be him. Confronting one-on-one the best goalkeeper in the world in Gordon Banks in an FA Cup tie against Stoke, giving him the eye, a dummy, and putting him on his backside whilst rolling the ball in the other corner with a grin on his face. Pure class. Scoring two late goals against Chelsea in the same competition to grab a stunning draw at Stamford Bridge for the underdogs against the swaggering, arrogant favourites from London made him forever a Hull folk hero. Running through low league defences to find the net unerringly. Always a Johnny on the spot in the box where everything appeared to slow down while he assuredly controlled the ball and calmly picked his spots. He was a fabulous player, but unfortunately not such a fabulous person. I got an inkling of this when he had just been signed and I rushed for an autograph at a game and he unceremoniously refused me. Then my treatment room experience put him into my Jeff Boycott group of heroes to be admired but not loved. I received a knock whilst training in the gym and was dispatched down to the treatment room where the old larger than life physio Jimmy Lodge would have a look at me. Jimmy with his white coat, bristling overlong, untidy moustache and big glasses often atop his thick greying hair had been a wonderful player himself back in the day but was now consigned to the little room of bandages and liniment, as many ex-players were in those days. Diagnosis involved the push and pull of a limb, not necessarily the injured one. Match day treatment was a dousing with a cold sponge, again not necessarily on the site of the injury. In the treatment room, we always had to sit under the big antiquated infrared heat lamp, straight from the set of Doctor Who, no matter what was best prescribed. There were two tables under the sloping ceiling of the West Stand and as I walked in to tell Jimmy what my problem was I noticed there was someone on the other table. Tatty battered off-white trainers on saggy ill-fitting socks were the first things I saw. Then the legs, which were obviously originally pasty white but now were black and blue with bruises, both old and more recent. They looked quite horrendous a testament to what was then a brutal game, with little protection for the creative in the face of the spoilers. There were no shorts, only trunks, and the old green tank top completed an unglamorous look for my superstar Waggy, who was to be my treatment mate that evening. Top of the club meets bottom, which is just how it felt during the most excruciating half-hour imaginable. Only Jimmy Lodge's laboured breathing and constantly sniffing nose atop a moist moustache broke the silence. Waggy never acknowledged me or shifted his bored gaze and I was too scared and intimidated to do anything but mimic his demeanour. I'm sure my academy colleague, the impish Dave Borrell, would have had a crack at some banter, but I was just left feeling you should never meet your heroes. One evening during the Tuesday-Thursday routine of getting to and from Boothbury Park, my dad picked me up at the usual spot on the corner of Boothbury Road and North Road, but didn't turn around to go back to Cottingham as usual. Instead, we carried on towards the Gypsyville estate, and I asked him why. To see a man about a dog was his usual evasive retort, but he was actually seeing a couple about acquiring a new fruit shop on the parade of shops that fronted Hesel Road on the large Gypsyville roundabout. Old Mr and Mrs Gladstone came to the front door and escorted us through their old-fashioned little fruit shop into the rear where they lived. They were everything you would expect from their name and age. I didn't think anything then of Dad taking me, but when I look back 
I think that sort of involvement at my age was seriously cool. It was also an education to see my dad in his pomp, a witness's particular negotiating style. It was direct and calmly assertive, with traditional positional bargaining playing no part. I would follow this regime of his when I entered the world of business. Mr and Mrs Gladstone, I am interested in buying your business and I am glad you have it up for sale and are talking to me. I value it at £3,500 all in including the property and make you this cash offer to be open for 24 hours ending at the close of business tomorrow. I always make only one offer as my final and best for I find this prevents lots of to and fro and messing around. I hope you agree. If you have an answer for me now, that's good. If not, I shall await your response tomorrow. They took the offer there and then, and we had a new outlet in a location where my dad wanted to be. Simple as that. He never worried too much about the number or that they had snapped his hand off. His only concern was the value he put on it and what it was worth to him. Many know the cost of everything and the value of nothing, but Dad properly had it the other way around, and I had no hesitation in following his example. What wasn't so simple, I found as we got home, was that Dad had not so much as even mentioned it to Mum, and she was not happy. She thought we should be contracting, and Dad slowing down, not expanding. Dream on, Ethel. Dad was so right and this acquisition proved a masterstroke as a refurbished store run by my brother quickly became our best performer by some distance. I loved working there on my holidays as much as Ronnie liked playing dominoes in the adjacent Gypsyville Tavern. He became a much-loved community character and insisted on serving the three-day millionaires as the trawlermen of Hesler Road were known. They became regular customers through his banter, but unfortunately he also became too close to some of their women while they were away at sea. Brother and father had many a running about the pricing regime at Gypsyville. Ronnie insisting he had to be demonstrably competitive, whereas Dad wanted the prices and margins he could get in York. They could never agree, so my job was to quickly swap the price tickets on the flash if Dad's van was ever seen coming round the roundabout. I found that such subterfuge can be a lot of fun. They also disagreed as to whether Ronnie could leave the shop every other Saturday for a couple of hours to see the Tigers play just 300 yards down the road at Bulfrey Park. Dad wasn't having it, but Ronnie never argued. He just defied the ban, then vehemently denied going if confronted. This was all very well until the advent of Anglia Television regularly screening the Tigers on a Sunday afternoon and we would gather as a family to watch Inglorious Black and White after dinner. During my upbringing the midday meal was dinner and the evening meal was tea. One Sunday Dad inquired whether Ronnie had succumbed to the temptation of the game we were viewing on TV and he vigorously said he hadn't, playing all hurt and offended at such an accusation. The camera then zoomed in on a linesman who just made a controversial call and behind him on the terrace was our kid, stood on his own, smoking. We all pissed ourselves while father and son fell out again. The Gypsyville shop was to be the last one standing in the Ronsoul Empire to give my brother a living until he finally retired, the supermarkets ending the local grocery shop as a high tree entity. Mike of Harfaletti's fame was with him to the end, bless him. Rest in peace those places and characters, the community engagement and sheer fun we had. You can see why I would later have limited sympathy for the big box retailers being threatened by online shopping. Meanwhile, life at the Tigers Academy was becoming stale and uninspiring for me. The school was putting pressure on my parents regarding my obsession with football rather than bigger upcoming exams. Yes, Cottingham Secondary Modern School was getting precious about their thickies taking exams, a harbinger of today when it seems to be all they're bothered about. I felt like reminding them that football was the only reason I stopped on at school anyway. Things were about to change football-wise, however, when I was introduced to the fruit trade setup with all those wonderful old pros and experienced top amateurs, and most importantly, refreshingly nice people. Playing with them felt natural and so easy. Keep it simple was the mantra. Move into space, receive the ball with a good first touch. Keep your head up. 
plate quick the way you're facing, move again. Make an angle, keep on the move. No fancy stuff to beat players unless in the final third of the pitch where it really counts. The one and two touch condition games in training, which really examine whether you can play, were stimulating rather than challenging for me. There was no top or bottom dog hierarchy here, just the talent-based meritocracy that I was to promote throughout my career. One thing that revealed itself in this company was that I was quicker than most and the older experienced players couldn't handle my youthful pace and change of direction. Never considered particularly fast, I had a reasonable change of pace for my own age group, but with these seniors it proved a real weapon. I would play three times over the weekend for it was obligatory to turn out for your school on a Saturday morning and there were still trophies to win for them. Here I started to get the experience of being man-marked as the supposed star playing with the pros in the afternoon. That was fun. I remember once asking a Bridlington Headlands player if he was coming home with me for if so I would call my mum and arrange some lunch for him. The big thing was I was getting the 10,000 hours a person needs to master anything in pretty quick order. Also the goals started flying in, going from being decent to prolific in those couple of years of my late teens. Right foot, left foot, head, long range, short tappings, the lot. I was being played wide as a winger but encouraged to come in central and this suited me a treat. Two goals a game would be my average with three to five on a good day. From playing on a Sunday for fruit trades, I was asked to go and train with Bridlington Town, probably the area's best non-league club at the time, but then in transition and struggling against relegation from the Yorkshire League's top division. Bob Dennison, our bespectacled fitness fanatic of a manager, was about to jettison some expensive senior pros and put his faith in cheaper youth. And after only two training sessions, unbelievably, he put me in the side away to Lincoln United. I did okay, despite some rough treatment, as my pace troubled their defence. Bob was pleased with my effort and movement alone up front, and we got a valuable point in a nil-nil draw. I had passed his bravery test, it seemed. I came to love the travel in the Yorkshire League, with the oldest player, the debonair extrovert that was Mike Page, delegated to look after me, the youngest. I lapped up the stories of his football and cricket careers on our journeys and he became a role model hero for me. Confident, funny and a wonderful all-round sportsman, he rated me as much as I adored him. And this affection has lasted a lifetime. We reminisce when we meet now and I love him convincing me just how good I really was back then. Thanks Mike, you are a treasure. On the journey back from Lincoln, my colleagues told me how I would love playing at Queensgate Bridlington. It was one of the better little stadiums in the league, quaint and classy, with a lovely pitch in contrast to the West Riding mud heaps. Enjoy it I did, for I grabbed two early first-half goals in a 3-1 win, which eased our relegation worries. The headlines in the Sports Mail that night read, Schoolboy has dream debut and I was pleased as punch. I was a real celeb at school the next week, and the Humber Street Cafe was buzzing with my exploits. People say that you don't really know what's going on in those early halcyon days, and play with no pressure and a carefree joy. You don't take it too seriously, and you don't overthink. They would be right. Those days seem so delicious now, but I treated them as run-of-the-mill then. It wasn't a big deal. Just another kickabout. That young revamped Bridlington side went on a run in the second half of the season which would have won the league if they had started in the same way. I felt so happy and in my element with some great young players. Andy Fisher, Mike Watkins, Mike Kemp, England youth skipper John Hart, Mike Dale, Bob Ellington and wonderful old pros like former Hull City inside forward Dave King and the best goalkeeper I ever played with. Frank Leeson. Hull City really wanted him, but he wouldn't go, and Hull had to settle for a former Arsenal winger called Ian McKechnie, of Orange's fame for you old Tigers fans. We finished mid-table, but in the last league game of the season at Queensgate, we were up against runaway champions Freshfield from Sheffield, 
and Bob made us reluctantly form an aisle to clap them out onto the pitch in congratulations. It was a nice touch that they reciprocated at the end of the game as they clapped us in after we spanked them 4-0. I think they knew that they would probably be handing their title over to this talented young Bridlington side the next season. The most satisfying evidence of our progress was in the big local derby against Bridlington Trinity. They were moneyed, basically West Riding, and had held the upper hand in recent years. We were hull-based, young, up-and-coming and becoming a real threat to their supremacy, as the local press had it. The showdown on the ground we shared was late season and overhyped, but this turned out great because we put them to the sword in a wonderful performance at Queensgate. Our stoical, normally unexcitable icon of a goalkeeper, Frank Gleeson, came into the dressing room at the end, claiming he had never had so little to do in a Brid derby. And as he threw his gloves down on the bench, he exclaimed in Western style, we fucking shagged him in the noonday sun. Such happy days made all the hard-running training and time-consuming travel seem worthwhile. Bob insisted on always putting the team first. The season's finale was the East Riding Senior Cup final against North Ferriby United at Boothbury Park. It was a grudge match, for they were shouting about being the best team in the area, despite being more than a league below us in the rankings. They were, however, seriously up and coming. I had scored a routine brace in the quarter-final to put out another semi-pro club, Hull Brunswick, but missed the semi as I was away with my school in Holland in an international tournament. We lost the final on the new tie-break system of penalty kicks, which would set the tone for more senior England teams of the future. I just got back into the country in time for the final, and my long yearn for debut at my beloved Boothbury Park. But Bob told me he was going with the winning team of the semi. A big disappointment, but there were no tantrums from me, as I just wasn't like that in those days. I turned up at the dressing room an hour before, and it looked as though there would be a decent crowd for another local derby. Sitting in the sloping ceiling rooms under the stands, as I had done every Tuesday and Thursday since I was 11 years old, I noticed Bob running around looking unusually hassled. I was seriously relaxed. He looked at me, then came over to reveal that Pagey had been called up by his employer's Derbyshire Cricket Club to play cricket and wouldn't be making it, so I was in. Get changed, quick. No time for nerves. I ran out with the team for a moment I had always dreamed of. I remember thinking that my first touch of the ball in this important game might be pivotal to my overall performance. A good one would give confidence, a poor one might set me back. I was feeling nervous for the first time in my short footballing life. The wait for that first touch was agonising. I was running all over the place up front, showing for a pass, running for a through ball. Let me take the next throw in for Christ's sake. What seemed an age was actually only five minutes in. Mike Watkins shuffled, dummied and tried a long range shot towards the Ferriby goal, which was blocked by a defender on the edge of the penalty area. The ball span way up in the air and was falling towards me as I was positioned to Mike's right, craving that first pass. It was a long time in the air, looping and spinning towards me, asking for a volley that most difficult but spectacular of footballing skills. Getting the right body shape, lean back, keep eyes on the ball, relax and get a clean strike before the ball falls too far. I did. It was the best goal of my life. It flew into the top corner, hit the back stanchion and came back out. As any footballer will tell you, this is the optimum visual result. We won the cup after beating Ferriby 5-2 after extra time, with Andy Fisher getting a brace and me scoring another with a less spectacular volley in extra time. The argument about who was the best side in the area after Hull City was over for now as Dave King reminded everybody at the final whistle. The press declared their standing winger Sewell their man of the match. This had manager Bob apologising to me and calling me definitely no standing but I wasn't bothered in the slightest, for I felt I would play as first choice at Bulfrey Park many more times in the future. I never played there again. Life turned out to be like that. 
I learned eventually to take every opportunity with relish and play each game as if it was to be my last. In my teens I had witnessed the Apollo moon landing in awe and disbelief. Neil Armstrong taking that giant leap for mankind. The first human heart transplant took place and a cultural revolution in pop, art and music led by the Beatles and Rolling Stones in Britain. England were the world football champions and we were contemplating a classless society for the first time. In the United States, the human rights struggle led by Martin Luther King was underway, musically articulated by my tousled-haired hero, Bob Dylan. It was truly the best time in history to be a teenager. Hope, joy and optimism abounded like never before or since. Social mobility was for the first time a fact and it was to benefit my generation. My concerns were parochially focused as they were bound to be at that age, but it was nearly all over before it had all begun thanks to a Lambretta SX150 scooter and my inability to control it. In those days, if you were motorised on two wheels, you were either a greasy, hard-case rocker with a motorbike or a more fashion-conscious, music-loving mod with a scooter. It was tribal and the girls had to choose what genre of bloke they were interested in before looking at the personal spec. The rockers, like the two Peters, Dean and Berry in their leathers, seemed really bothered about the technical side of their steeds and their intimate workings. But mods like myself and Ian Grandage in our fair hooded parkas were interested only in the colour and the many accessories in which you could personalise the machine. Mods and rockers battled violently at bank holiday seaside resorts as was seen regularly on the national news but I experienced only one dose of real aggro. I was surrounded by a group of the smelly Neanderthals en route to a Saturday school game in Hornsey as they tried to kick my beautiful side panels in while I was going at 50 mile an hour past Brands Burton. Their collective IQ, not matching the capacity of the engine that the sculptured side panel cloaked, probably saved my bacon as they were swerving around with more bravado than sense and attracting the attention of other road users. Hence they shot off, shouting, Puff! In our cot school group, however, the banter was good-natured and the conflict restricted to a speed challenge race between the laughably dodgy machines of Peter Berry on his old Honda and Ian Grandage on his even older Vespa. I did muse at this juncture that I knew Ian had to work hard and endlessly at summer salad picking to save enough money to buy his old machine, whereas my dad had provided me with a brand new model straight from the showroom. Thereafter, Ian would obviously know the value of money far better than me. I was never actually bothered about money regardless whether I had none or lots. Strange really. The much anticipated great race between Rocker Berry and Mod Grandage was hyped up at school, many even betting as to whether the half mile straight course near the village of Walkington would actually be completed by either, let alone who might cross the finishing line first and in one piece. The great day arrived, and thankfully it was dry and dull, producing perfect conditions out on the country road. There was a small crowd of a dozen or so of us, with our allegiances being obvious from the machines we sat upon. I was not at all confident of a mod victory, and I wondered if I could have any influence in my role as starter, but I couldn't readily think of any way to give Ian any advantage. The fact was that our mod competitor was altogether too big. Helmet, Parker and the running boards did not look built for speed. Berry was the opposite, as both his jacket and helmet were way too small, the latter perhaps accounting for his tomato red face and the look of somebody about to be shot from a cannon in a circus. This would have been wonderfully comedic if it hadn't have been so serious. The time came. I checked the road was clear and demanded silence. Five, four, three, two, one, go! The revving of engines during the countdown demonstrated a predictable disparity. Ian's scooter screeching like a demented sewing machine, whilst Berry's motorbike chugged and spluttered like an overexerted bronchial old nag. 
Our view from the start line was obscured by thick clouds of filthy black smoke, but it became obvious that Berry the bike was slowly but surely pulling ahead of the big mod and won by some ten yards. Shit. Ian's excuse was missing his gears, whereas the greaser's synopsis was about superior machines and braver riders. Win some, lose some. But a few weeks later on the same road, I could and maybe should have lost my life, and this put it all into perspective. John Revel and I had agreed with John Gray, our local youth worker, that we would represent the Cottingham Evening Institute at a football tournament as part of the Walkington Village Fates. We owed John for turning a blind eye lots of times over the years, and he was a good guy, so two allegedly proper footballers were to be part of his seven-man team. The problem we found when we got there was that it was not up to be a proper game of football. Instead, it was played with a weighted comedy ball that bounced all over the place to even the game up and give the crowd some fun. Revs and I did not think this funny and assumed a diva strop as we departed on my scooter back for a Saturday nighting the bright lights of Cottingham. I was not used to having a passenger, particularly one of Revel's size and weight, and its effect was noticeable as we made our way back down the same road as the Mod Rocker Challenge, but in the other direction. At the end of the long straight of Berry's victory, there were two sharp S-bends to negotiate, with the problem being I didn't negotiate them. I lost control on the first left-hander and we veered right towards the centre of the road with a van coming the other way. I entered the van's carriageway with the full expectation it would hit us head-on, so I swerved right to avoid him, knowing we would go over an embankment and into the field some four feet below. It was the right decision as this turned out to be the lesser of two evils. We parted company with the scooter, which somersaulted into the field and ended up lonely on its back, revving disconsolately. I hit the ground with Revel on my back and skidded to a halt face down on the shoulder of the wrong side of the road. I was a bit of a raggedy mess, but my passenger got up without a mark, as if he was ready for a night out in the village. The vehicle that just missed us never stopped and neither did my dad in his truck when he passed by some minutes later on his way home from work in York. Evidently he did wonder what a scooter was doing in the middle of a field, which I was of course able to clear up after my walk home. The machine was a bit of a wreck, with bent forks and panels ruined, but Revel and I were unbelievably okay and fit to play for fruit trades the next morning. I believe there are moments of truth in life when you either get lucky or you're not. I got lucky that day and so had the privilege of a wonderful life and being able to recount it in this book. Maybe having a god bother in my sister Joan tipped things my way. The highlight of that fruit trade Sunday league season was another big derby game, this time in the semi-final of the Munro Cup against arch-rivals Fish Trades. They were packed with talent, including more young Bridtown signings who were now my Saturday teammates and were odds-on favourites as we had lost some of our old heads and had not replaced them with the same quality. It's not easy for me to describe the atmosphere of these local sporting occasions that were played on works pitches and parks pitches, whose perimeters were fully lined with partisan spectators. I hope I don't fall prey to the glow of nostalgia, but they were incredible and I have never seen anything like them since. I had the game of my life that day scoring a hat-trick and winning and missing a penalty in a famous 3-2 win for the fruit. My free kick bent over the wall, a near-post delicate glance finish and a rasping drive gave us the spoils and bragging rights, but it was the rest of my play I was most pleased with. I felt as if I was a senior playmaker, even though I was still a schoolboy. My brother Ronnie was at home for Sunday tea after taking the game in with my dad. When we were seated at the table, he turned to the old man, who, as usual, was in his white vest enlivened by his braces. Did all right today, didn't he? Ronnie proffered. Crap, Dad replied. Anybody who misses a penalty needs to be taken off the pitch and shot. I knew I had his approval. Dad was not the only one who approved. The next day, I took my then girlfriend, Ten Pin Bowling, to Hull Bowl on Beverley Road on my Lambretta SX150 scooter. 
I packed it in the car park with all of the swagger of a, the mod I was becoming. The who and small faces showing their influence. Halfway through our game of bowls, a smartly dressed older guy approached us. When he took out an ID badge from an inside pocket, I thought he was a traffic policeman who had spotted something wrong with my scooter or the behaviour of its driver. I was wrong. I represent Blackpool Football Club. We've been watching you for some time and I was at the game yesterday. You are no Dennis Law or George Best, but we think you could play for us at the highest level. Will you come over to Blackpool so we can have a closer look at you? They were a good top flight club then, boasting not only Sir Stanley Matthews, the most famous player in the world of his time, but more recently England's Fred Pickering and young prodigy Tony Green and a World Cup winner in Alan Ball. I had the same feeling that day as I did 40 years later when I opened the envelope on the Queen's offer of an OBE, fancy crest and all. Oh God, this is probably special. My first reaction was to speak to my Bridtown manager and wonderful mentor, Bob Dennison, and I'm glad I did. He was used to this world and dealt with Blackpool for me, agreeing that I would go and play a maximum of six games in their colours, after which time they would have to make a definitive decision on me. Bob knew that clubs can get you to travel endlessly and play while they procrastinate. In any event, he didn't want to lose me for too long from Bridlington Town while they did. They took two Hull boys, me and England schoolboy centre-half Martin Capes, a big gentle giant of a lad. It was good to travel together. Every club wanted Martin, so him coming with me to Blackpool made me feel my decision was a decent one. We played A-team games at their training ground, and I remember a reserve team fixture at Football League Stadium Edgeley Park, the home of Stockport County. I received the ball early on, out on the right wing, around the halfway line. I played it back inside and went for a return down the right wing to get us on the attack. In unison, the bench jumped up and berated me for playing a square ball inside my own half, telling me it had better be the last of its kind in a Blackpool shirt. Welcome to the cautious percentage world of professional football. I played the agreed number of games, returned to the Bridlington Town cause and forgot all about Blackpool until the end of the season when they got in touch and offered me a full-time contract. It was all I ever wanted. A ten-year dream of playing football for a living had come true. This was unreal. They wanted me to go and sign the paperwork and see my digs etc in the third week of July but this presented a practical problem. I was to accompany my cousin Martin to join his parents, dad's sister Auntie Gladys and her husband Tom, in Germany for three weeks. Tom was a career soldier now, top of the non-commissioned ranks and head of the British mission to the Soviet forces in Russian-controlled Eastern Germany. Big cheese, my uncle. We were to stay with them in their splendid villa in Potsdam, where Churchill, Stalin and Roosevelt had signed the post-war treaty that petitioned defeated Germany and unwittingly signalled the beginning of the Cold War. Significant and historic indeed, and I didn't think I could miss the chance or break the agreement with my cousin. I certainly wasn't going to be anywhere near the first team, so Blackpool agreed. To be in West Berlin and Potsdam, the epicentre of the Cold War, would be an incredible experience for anyone, but for a 17-year-old fruiterer's lad from Hull, it was another unreal experience. We stayed in West Berlin for the first week. It appeared to be a cosmopolitan city that was recovering well from the Germans' catastrophic defeat in the Second World War. The infamous wall that partitioned Berlin and separated Russian-controlled communist Eastern Europe from the capitalist West was erected by the Russians to keep the population from fleeing its poor autocratic dictatorship towards perceived freedom. This was an embarrassment to them and provoked a draconian response. We visited Checkpoint Charlie, the border crossing that we had all seen on the telly as the flashpoint of tensions as American and Russian tanks faced off with the world holding its breath, fearing a third world war. It was scary, it was as scary as it was unremarkable. I stood at the barrier and looked into East Germany. 
It was an insight into how poor and bereft of life it was. No wonder people were risking their lives to confound the attempts to subjugate them, spawning jokes in the UK at the time such as the East German pole vault champion is now the West German pole vault champion. 20 years later, American President Ronald Reagan would be more serious and berate the Soviets in Berlin in front of the Brandenburg Gate and the world's press. Tear down this wall, Mr Gorbachev. Fifteen years later, I would hear Mikhail Gorbachev tell his side of the story in Harrogate of all places, but more of that later. I visited Spandau prison, which housed one of the most infamous prisoners in the world at that time, in Nazi Germany's deputy Führer, Rudolf Hess. My uncle told me of the daring flight Adolf Hitler's number two took to parachute into Scotland to try and meet up with Churchill and broker a peace deal impressing on me the significance of where we were at that moment in history. I don't think the fruiterers lad really got it at the time, if I'm to be honest. Then we went over into communist East Germany and the beautiful villa in Potsdam, where Uncle Tom and Auntie Gladys lived. The property was tight on the front road and the courtyard was rather austere with tall entrance gates patrolled and guarded by rather frightening Red Army soldiers. I walked past them without daring to look, but my jet-black-haired, blue-eyed Auntie Gladys was very hull and very sewell. Hello, boys. No response. The rear of the property was beautiful, with landscape gardens rolling down to a large picturesque lake. I would train in the gardens, fish in the lake, and listen to Bob Dylan's Charms of Freedom and The Hard Rains Are Gonna Fall, with those iconic lyrics now much more relevant to me. Yes, I used to take my vinyl on holiday with me. There was no telly, so it was dinner, cards, reading or music on an evening. We had a British Army signaller called John with us, who was almost part of the family. He was so like my cousin Martin, with thick specks, dark hair and solid frame, that I sometimes mistook them for each other. But it was John and my uncle would excuse themselves from the rest of us and disappear at the same time after dinner every evening. When I asked Mindy where they were going, she would be coy when sober. More forthcoming after a drink. However, she would reveal that they had a den in the attic with radios and stuff to be able to play at espionage. She would make a joke at her husband's expense using the increasingly popular James Bond film franchise. He thinks he's fucking M. And he's got his cue for company. The most dramatic day of our stay was when we walked into Potsdam to do some shopping, escorted all the way by one of our Russian guards walking ten paces behind. The term shopping, of course, was a bit of a misnomer when there was nothing to buy except some loaves of dark, hard-baked Russian rye bread, which we considered bringing back home to use as doorstops. Returning home, as Gladys, Martin and myself entered the front gate into the small courtyard to make our way to the front door, a young man in his twenties burst past us and ran towards the rear garden. The Russian guard at the gates gave chase and was joined by our companion from the shopping expedition, only to be accosted by John, our signaller, and my uncle Tom, telling them to get off British property. The Russian soldiers reluctantly but calmly acquiesced and my uncle thanked them before he went into the house to see what was going on. After an inquest, and a brief but fiery argument with Gladys, Tom came out of the house with the young asylum seeker, and handed him back to the Russians. My auntie called him a bastard more than once over dinner, to absolutely no reaction from my uncle, only suppressed giggles from me and their son Martin. This was good practice for us, because the suppressed European giggling championship was to take place at the upcoming mission dinner a couple of days later. These were regular formal events hosted in turn by each of the occupying forces. This time it was to be the turn of the French. This was enough to invoke comedy thoughts anyway, but when we saw the head of the French mission, who would make the keynote speech, was a dead ringer for Groucho Marx, we were sunk. The pomp of the participants in their military uniforms with their polished medals, was matched by the splendid table setting and the over-attentive waiting staff. 
Uncle Tom, shooting murderous glances at us across the table, only exacerbated the situation, provoking Auntie Gladys to join in our giggling. It was getting worse, or better, depending on your perspective. Then the moment of truth. Groucho's speech. I knew his opening words would be telling, either sealing our fate or giving us a fighting chance. Oh no. If you have ever seen the old classic BBC comedy series, Allo Allo, you will know the significance of what is about to be revealed. His address was to be in English. Pigeon English. The English that no doubt inspired the programme and its creators and was so amusing for its viewers. It was certainly funny to Martin and I, as our nasal snotty head-shaking performance showed. Uncle Tom was shaking, but not with mirth. We were in real trouble. But my dad's wonderful, worldly, fun sister came to the rescue. Gladys started loudly laughing along with us, whilst gesticulating to make a point that this was really funny. Sorry, monsieur, she began to explain. The boys and me were in Potsdam yesterday, and the funniest thing happened. We've been laughing about it ever since, all last night and this morning. Please continue, we shall tell you more later, sorry. She had of course no intention of hanging around after dinner, but resolved to get us out of there as soon as possible. It worked. Thank you Gladys, you told me that life must always have fun in it, and never to make excuses for pursuing it. Communism however, was far from fun. Anyone at that time who believed that this particular idealism might be some sort of answer to the woes of our society should have been with us on that trip, observing the downtrodden people and their yearning to break free. Visiting local shops in Potsdam and seeing nothing on the shelves, and if you wanted shoes you could have any colour as long as it was black. It was terrible, it was humbling, and it was an education. Later on at the university, when debating with any of the large band of trendy lefties who inhabited student life in those days, I could at least speak from experience, whereas they only read their books and attended earnest gatherings. I returned home to find none of the confirmation details that Blackpool FC had promised. I rang the telephone number I had been given. It was answered by a girl who knew nothing other than the manager and his coaching staff had been sacked and they were awaiting developments. I wanted to wait, but Dad was adamant. He was adamant that he wanted me out of there before I'd even been in. He was never really happy about me entering the insecure world of professional football, which he thought was for those with little alternative. Now we had his platform. All I could do was to await a call from the new regime. It never came. Prospecting calls did come from Johnny Steele, the manager of Barnsley and the renowned former Manchester United and Scotland boss Tommy Doherty, then at Aston Villa. I wish there was an interesting story behind this, because it would have been great to recount it here, but it was routine and all over in a flash after Mam had handed me the phone. Hello Paul, this is Tommy Doherty here of Aston Villa Football Club. We wondered if you would like to come down for us to have a look at you. I thought this might be a hoax at first, so I just said yes. Good, we'll be in touch. And that was it. I heard nothing more from Mr Doherty or Aston Villa. Over the years I've often doubted whether it happened at all. But I guess it was at a time when the manager did it all at a club. And a call from the top man might swing a young player with other options towards their club. I didn't think for a minute you had to be a star for them to want you to go for a trial. You just needed to have enough promise for them to play the numbers game with hordes of young players from which one or two might make it. I did play in front of Doherty once when he was assistant manager to Terry Neal at Hull City. It was a pre-season game after they had been on a Scandinavian tour and they brought a near full strength team to Queensgate to play Bridlington Town. We were in our pomp and played really well. They went up for it at all. It was a nil-nil draw, which agitated Terry Neal no end. We heard him storm into the dressing room across the corridor, shout, see you a lot at training, nine o'clock in the morning, and storm out. Tommy Doherty, however, came into our dressing room and congratulated us on our performance, which I thought was a bit of class. I can't remember whether this was before or after, but he was soon to depart Hull to answer the call of his country and take on managing the Scottish national team. 
Both Doherty and Johnny Steele at Barnsley wanted me to go for a month's trial and I was motivated to pursue such a golden opportunity. The likes of Dave King offered encouragement, warning me that I would otherwise spend a lifetime watching the games on the telly and wondering, what if? But Dad wanted me in the family business and I didn't want to go against his wishes. There again, I didn't want to spend my working life in the fruit trade, so I needed another job to avoid having to do so. Unfortunately, because I still dreamed of a career in football, it had to be a job that would let me have time off here and there, and the youth employment officer I saw about it said that would not be possible. He did, however, say that university would be an option, and for some peculiar reason, I had the A-levels to pursue it. <laughs> 